history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew, and I'm here again with another exciting episode. We've never done something like this before, so I'm really, really excited to welcome to the show Mr. William Brower. Welcome to the show, William. Well, thank you, man. It's a pleasure to be here. And today we're going to be talking about the Titanic. Now, you are the... um, consigliere on the titanic so i am going to just uh ask you the questions and uh because i'll be uh, up front i I mean i know the basics but i've done no research because i'm i am ready to be mesmerized by everything that you have to say i can't wait to hear it so i mean uh, why don't you introduce yourself uh for a little bit and then we'll get right into the titanic not a problem um you know uh my name is uh, William Brower. I'm uh, actually the uh, resident historian here for the South Florida area, uh, Fort Lauderdale, if you're familiar with the area and region. I've uh, actually been fortunate enough, I've devoted the past uh, 42 years uh, researching every aspect of Titanic. And uh, you know, was fortunate enough as well too, to have been friends with uh, the last four survivors and uh, even currently uh, some of the uh, expedition uh, dive team members and such. And uh, I've written uh, five books on the uh, ship herself and uh, outside of Titanic, I have also written uh, 30 other uh, titles, uh, predominantly fiction and nonfiction. I have had uh, two of my uh, movie scripts uh, optioned and produced uh, just between uh, 2019 and 2020. And uh, actually just a few months ago uh, was uh, actually won uh, best script in the Financial Literacy Film Festival. So uh, jack of all trades, for the lack of a better word. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask you more about your books later, but uh, to delve right into the Titanic... How did they come up with it? Was there a ship before the Titanic that sank and then they came up with this big idea to have this Titanic, the unsinkable ship? How did that get started? Well, basically uh, what, what happened is that uh, the uh, Canard Line had uh, just released the Lusitania and uh, her sister ship, the Mauritania. And, you know, bear in mind, this is about 1907 or so, and this is the height of the uh, emigration traffic and, uh, you know, even the uh, after ripple effects of the uh, Irish potato famine and such. And so uh, one of the biggest competitors that the Canard Line had at the time was uh, the White Star Line, which was run by uh, Bruce Ismay and owned by uh, J.P. Morgan. And... uh, you know, and so what they wanted to do was actually go ahead and uh, put something together that would uh, not really be an exact full rival to Lusitania or anything like that. Um, White Star always focused instead of on speed, uh, their primary focus was strictly on uh, luxury. You know, we'll get there uh, within this certain time frame, but uh, you're going to enjoy the trip along the way. <laughs> so. so- I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how did they come up with the name Titanic? 
Well, basically, uh, what it boils down to is um, White Star always ended their ships with an IC. Uh, even before Titanic, some of their bigger ships, uh, you know, the, the predecessors known as the Big Four included the Cedric, the Majestic, and things like that. Okay. So, with Titanic, what they did was they, uh, you know, they decided to term the uh, ship as the Olympic-class liners. Titanic was only the second of three ships that were designed. And her first sister was the Olympic, and she was the first one launched and everything else. Ironically enough, of the three, she's the one that had the longest career and lasted shortly over 20 years before being uh, scrapped in uh, 1934. Okay. And what uh, particulars about the Titanic in terms of uh, uh, max capacity and how long it is and, and anything you can tell us about uh, the structural uh, side of the Titanic? Well, she uh, was designed to carry uh, 3,500 passengers, uh, 882 feet long, 92 feet wide, and 175 feet high. So, uh, a lot smaller compared to some of our larger, uh, more modern cruise ships. But, but yet, but uh, yet they gave her the name Titanic. Yes. <laughs> you know, but but of course, almost a uh, hundred times more luxurious, though, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways compared to the modern setting. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of get a fun little uh, best of both worlds, in a matter of speaking, on that factor. Now, um. There are a few uh, myths with the movie that was released in 1997, and I just want to clear it up. Um, the, the one and only time the Titanic, that's, that's when it sank, correct? Or was correct. it run before? So it wasn't run before? No, no. Uh, no, certainly, um, you know, April, she hit the, uh, hit the bar at uh, 1140 on April the 14th, just before midnight. Well, we'll get we'll get there. We'll get there. I just wanted yeah. to. You said the the um, the other two ships had a longer life. Uh, do you know about roughly how long? Well, uh, her uh, the the youngest of the Olympic class was uh, Britannic, and uh, by the time she came into service, uh, the First World War was already going into effect. So she was uh, recommissioned as a, a hospital ship, and so. Um, you know, she ended up uh, sinking in the uh, off the coast of Greece uh, in uh, November of uh, 1916. Ironically enough, with uh, two uh, Titanic survivors uh, actually working as crew members on board at the time. Wow! So, wow, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of stuff you're going to tell me. I'm I'm not going to know. <laughs> um. Well, okay. Uh, this is something that I'm always happy to always uh, share and talk about. And uh, I, I always say that if you go for the basic questions, uh, if you want to pardon the pun, that's always the tip of the iceberg anyways. Okay. So The other myth that I wanted to clear up was that the, the characters from the movie in 1997, they weren't based on real people, were they? For the most part, except for Jack... The rich guy, the boyfriend, husband, whatever you want to call him, he was based on a real person. Well, he was a uh, you know a creative uh, license based off of 
people of that time. Okay. But, you know, yeah, no, no Cal Hockley, no Jack and Rose, no uh, Rose's mom, and uh, no Heart of the Ocean necklace. There's the other Mythbuster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but there is one thing that is still on board the ship. Should it ever be found, it would it would literally make that necklace look like something in a gumball machine. Really? Believe it or not. Yeah, it's a uh, jeweled copy of a book called uh, The Rubyot. And, uh, the Rubyot is you can actually still find copies uh, on Amazon to this day. It's uh, it's basically a book of uh, 11th century Arabic love poems. But uh, this particular one was encrusted with uh, gemstones, jewels, and uh, gold plate and everything else in between. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Okay, so um, refresh my memory. When did the Titanic take off and where did it take off from? Uh, she sailed on the 10th of April, 1912, from uh, Southampton, England, heading uh, for New York. And... Uh, you know, unfortunately, by the fourteenth, uh, was just uh, you know pretty almost uh, seven hundred miles from uh, Halifax when uh, she hit the berg. So, um, for argument's sake, if if the trip to New York was successful, was the the next trip back to England? Yes. So yeah, it, it, it basically would just went strictly transatlantic back and forth. Oh. Okay. Um. Okay, so it takes off from you said sorry Southampton, um, England on on April tenth, and um, I guess just just wa- walk us through uh, right up I guess until it, uh, the iceberg hits. Just walk walk us through that. You can go into much de- as much detail as you want. I, I'm here for it. I'm I'm excited, and then we can. Uh, you know, we'll figure out where to go from there. Okay, no, no problem. I mean, um, you know, for the most part, my uh, a bulk of my research uh, focuses predominantly on uh, the uh, passengers and crew. And so, uh, you know, if you if you want to, if you have anything on the technical side of things, I can direct you to uh, another colleague who's uh, can even give you the full dimensions of the rooms if needs be, and right down to the paint scheme. <laughs> so. <laughs> But uh, but for for the most part, um, you know, to start with, uh, Titanic actually did not have a full capacity when uh, when sailing day started. Really? So, uh, yeah, yeah. She had a total of uh, you know two thousand two hundred and eight people. Okay. So did it? It didn't uh, in the movie. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it made stops. That's not what happened in in reality. Oh, no, it, it did. Okay. Um, on the night of the 10th, she pulled into uh, Cherbourg, France. And on the morning of the 11th was her final European port of call, which was uh, Queenstown, Ireland. Uh, these days, it's known as Cove. Okay. And, um, again, I, I, I keep referencing the movie. Sorry about that. But uh, in, right. in the movie, it, it seems like the captain of the ship is under pressure to... Um, get to New York faster. Is that how it was in reality? No. No, not in the least. Um, you know, that, unfortunately, is where we start to see some of the uh, creative licensing blend into the uh, 
true history of it. Okay, so then um, how how did the uh, I guess how did it happen? How did the the ship hit the iceberg? What led up to it is what I guess I'm asking. Well, uh, it, you know, in that case, that's one of the biggest flukes of uh, nature that you could ever imagine. Um, you know, to start with, in terms of Captain Smith, uh, believe it or not, he was the uh, Commodore of the White Star Fleet, and he'd been at sea for over 30 years. And, uh, you know, even though we do see in the movie, um, you know, Bruce Ismay trying to you know, persuade him to go faster and things like that. At the end of the day, uh, the captain is the one in charge of the uh, ship, and it, whatever he says, it's his word. So, you know, obviously uh, there were ice reports that were coming in and things like that, and Smith was aware of impending ice uh, to a point where, believe it or not, he actually moved Titanic almost 100 miles further south from her original assigned route, you know, just in the... Uh, you know, possibility of trying to avoid the ice field altogether. Okay. So, unfortunately, what happened on the uh, night of the 14th was that uh, Titanic hit what, what is called a blackbird. And what it is, you know, how we normally expect to see, you know, the, uh, the typical iceberg in a lot of the uh, photos and stuff where it's all white, snow caps, yes. things like that. Okay, well, in this case, what happened is that uh, the berg has been out at sea for so long that it's been expected, you know, ex exposed to the sunlight. And so it's gotten top heavy, so it's turned turtle. So now you have clear ice directly above the ocean and sea level instead of the white stuff. And um, so when, they, uh, when the berg was first spotted, uh, you know, just a little before 20 of 12, on the 14th, uh, Frederick Fleet, who was the one that spotted it, said that it was a, a black speck on the horizon, roughly about the size of your pinky fingernail. And what he was looking for was the absence of starlight. That's exactly what he saw. And so he sounded the warning with, uh, you know, three sharp alarm rings on the bell. And, uh, you know, again, it's one of those cases where, you know, ship was coming and steaming in you know, just a little bit shy of about 21 knots not too much but she never made top speed at all during the entire trip but you know once the orders were given to reverse the engines and to try to swing around um you know there was too much too many seconds had already passed you know um the officer in charge was first officer murdoch and between the time of the uh, notification of the phone call and everything else, uh, there were 37 seconds to make up the, his uh, mind on what to do. And so by the time they finally started to get the ship slowly starting to turn is when the impact finally happened. And how it happened, is it uh, similar to uh, the way it happened in the movie or completely different? Within reason, it is very similar. Okay. Um, you know, what, what she did was uh, she ended up buckling her plates, uh, you know, from the very foremost area back towards the boiler room itself, six of the oil. And the section near the boiler room itself, what it, what it did on top of everything else is it actually had buckled directly underneath the, uh, the door for the watertight uh, compartment. 
So it actually just rendered that that part completely uh, useless, regardless. Wow. Um. Okay, and then uh, sorry. Um, no from there, uh, I guess it 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 fills up pretty fast, and then it splits. But there was a call, and there were. Um, survivors. So, um, how did that all work out? And as it relates to the movie, is it accurate or um, not so much? Anything you want to uh, say on, on the, I guess, the sinking and the rescue mission? Well, um, in, in terms of what you see on on film for for that part, except for the very final moments, you know, um, you know her. The final plunge really was not that high at all. That was more for dramatic purposes, but I'll I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, you know, but uh, for the for the most part, um, one of the biggest complicating factors that uh, most of the officers had to face uh, once they realized that uh, you know there was a problem with the ship was uh, lifeboat capacity, because obviously everyone knows today with hindsight. You know that the boats were only, you know, loaded half full and things to that effect. Um, but what the uh, problem there what comes into play is that uh, you know the Titanic was running under British Board of Trade regulations, and the last time that there was any uh, meeting with Board of Trade in regards to safety measures at sea, they never anticipated the Industrial Revolution. So. What they did was they actually provided the measurements based off the cubic foot and not by anything in the way of the passenger capacity. And so prior to the disaster, all ships at that time, including, you know, no matter where you were in the world, were running off of these regulations. And so they only would carry 16 lifeboats. Now, when Titanic was built, they actually included four additional emergency lifeboats into the construction. So technically, in the eyes of inspections for back then, they now exceeded the safety regulation that was implemented to begin with. Okay. Now, during the first 40 minutes is where you start to see the breakdown of everything in a lot of ways. And this is, this is the, some of the more ripple effects and the crucial factors. And what it boils down to was the fact that, uh, you know, even though the damage was there, the ship really wasn't that listing very much. And so, you know, obviously people were wondering because, you know, obviously they're watching the lifeboats being readied and things to that effect. And, you know, some of them did decide to come and go into some of the early boats, but for the most part, the reaction was, well, why? You know, the outside temperature was below freezing. The water itself was 28 degrees. And, you know, at that point in time, you know, there was really nothing you could see on board the ship that told you that there was anything wrong outside of the fact that the people standing around on deck and, you know, the ship's orchestra playing and, you know, sometimes the occasional steward offering drinks along the way. You know, so it was very, very difficult 
you know, to try to persuade people to board the boats in the first place. And then on top of that, this is also the age before any public address system. And so there's the fine line of issuing orders and causing a full-blown riot and panic. So, you know, needless to say, that's why, uh, for the most part, the very first few boats to leave, um, you know, there was a lot of hesitation. And so they were left half full. Um, at one point, uh, the ship's second officer, Charles Weitoller, was had directed a group of crew members to go down to the D-deck area and open one of the gangway doors. And then the game plan was to possibly redirect everybody down the stairs and, and out that way to go and pick up more passengers. But amidst all the chaos, confusion, and everything else, even though the one door did get opened, you know, by that point, half the boats were gone, and then the reality finally started to sink in the rest of the way. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, I, I would say, I mean, just from, from a, you know, a writer's perspective and everything else, you know, when you look at the sinking as a whole, you know, you have two hours and 42 minutes. And literally whatever emotion you could think of actually played out and there's you know that that's where the story can really really draw you in okay and you know i mean um just to give you some ideas uh one of the passengers on board uh, was a gentleman by the name of uh, michel hoffman he was a frenchman with his uh, two small sons okay now what they didn't know at the time was that uh, Mr. Hoffman was actually his alias. His real name was Michelle Navratil, and he had kidnapped his sons in a custody battle to try to take them over to the States. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, he realized that, uh, you know, they were not going to make it stateside after all. So he put both of his uh, children into one of the last lifeboats. And, uh, you know, told the youngest one that, you know, tell your mother that I've always loved her. And, you know, even though the two boys survived and went on to become the Titanic waves and the orphans of Titanic, um, you know, never kill himself was among the lost. Wow. Yeah. That is, uh, I, I didn't know that either. <laughs> um, Surprise. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's so many stories like that that are always so fascinating. So uh, you know, well, you're in for a fun treat. Ask away. Feel free. Well, you've had the benefit of um, contacting and researching and keeping up with survivors and hearing their stories. Um, I guess anything that you want to share, um, I, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm, you, you, you hooked me. I'm, I'm here. Okay, no, no problem. Um, you know, of of the four that I knew, the one who was the most outspoken uh, was a lady by the name of Eva Hart, and at the time she was uh, seven. And you know, her story was always just absolutely fascinating to begin with because uh, you know, just like so many other people, it was one of those cases where uh, you know her father had, was offered a job opportunity. 
and so the family was going to relocate and everything else. And um, but what makes it more fascinating is the fact that uh, Eva's mother had a premonition, and so during the entire time of the voyage, she never went to bed at night. And so she always would stay up and read books and do other things and then sleep during the day. So, you know, that was what made the whole experience more um, impactful in Eva's case because the fact that, you know, she had four extra days with her father, you know, for the most part during the course of the daytime and things to that effect. And so, uh, you know, just like with the uh, Never Teal Boys, um, you know, once uh, Mr. Hart realized that, uh, you know, there was a problem and everything else to that effect, you know, he brought her and, and his wife up to the boat deck. And, um, you know, he uh, basically helped her into the boat and said, you know, be a good girl and hold mommy's hand. And uh, those were his last words to her. And, you know, she actually watched and witnessed uh, the ship breaking in half. And she was one of the first of many survivors in later years to say that, you know, it broke in half on the way down because there was still such a general consensus versus what, you know, really on the proximity and everything else, what it is that you saw exactly. Wow. You know, so only added more to the confusion of it. And uh, you said she was seven years old, so uh, I'm just curious uh, how... Is this something that she carried through her whole life? And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just wondering. Oh, very, very much so. I mean, you know, even uh, even the youngest survivor, whom I was uh, close with, her name was uh, Melvina Dean. Uh, she was nine weeks old when on board Titanic, and even though you know she knew about the stories just from being passed down from her mom. You know, the one thing that she always did have that she had, you know, it's kind of a memory that she had told me was just the fact that, you know, even as a baby, her father had one of the, you know, the typical period style mustaches. And every time that he would kiss her, she'd automatically want to scratch her cheek because it made her itchy. And, you know, after that night, the kisses never happened. Wow. Wow. Um... I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> so, feel free to ask anything you would like. I mean, uh, like I said, it, it's good to see that you're, uh, that the film was able to make an impact with you, but once you come into the, the real story of which was the basis for it, you know, more times than not, the uh, the, the reality of it is, is equally just as fascinating. Well, let's talk about the movie for a second. Um... I'm just wondering if uh, uh, J James Cameron wrote it, so obviously he did some research on the the movie. Um, I saw it when I was, I don't know, four, 14, 1997? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was 14. I, yeah, I was 14. I don't know why. Anyway, uh, I and um, one thing I remember, I don't know why we, it's because we were 14, we laughed, we thought it was funny. Um Oh, yeah. When the guy, uh, I guess they're at the top of the ship waiting for it to go down, and then the guy falls and he hits his leg off the propeller on the way down. Oh, yes. Um, 
we thought it was funny. Our girl, uh, me and my friend, and then our girlfriends punched us because they were crying. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I'm just wondering because uh, we had a we had a phone conversation you and I, and you said uh, that that was based on something that did happen. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that. Well, not not specifically the guy hitting the uh, propeller, <clears throat> but. Um, you know, in the seconds prior to that, you do see the uh, one crew member um, holding on to the railing and drinking whiskey in his, from his flask, mm-hmm. if you remember correctly. Well, he, he's one of the most interesting survivor stories for the whole disaster. The gentleman's name is uh, Charles Joffin, and uh, the actor who uh, played him in the film is uh, Liam Toohey, who I'm actually just crossed paths with uh, just a few months ago, and uh, you know complimented him on on, on the likeness, uh, not only of how he was able to bring the bring the character out, but also you know just some of the more subtleness as well too. Um, Joffin actually was the last man to leave Titanic, really? and in his own words, you know. He actually rode the ship down like an elevator and did not get his head wet. Wow. Now, and prior to that part, though, yes, he was drinking multiple glasses of whiskey. And, you know, one of those things where, you know, he talked about drinking it publicly and such, but in private circles, he also explained, too, was that uh, what had happened prior to making that decision was that uh, the ship's surgeon, uh, Dr. O'Loughlin, whom Joplin had known from working on other ships and such, uh, you know, kind of pulled close friends aside and was like, listen, you know, this is the situation. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of us that are not going to make it tonight. What you should do is go ahead and get yourself completely drunk to a point that you're going to black out and fall asleep ahead of time. So you're not going to know when the end comes. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> and ironically enough, that's what he did. But he rode it down like an elevator. And uh, he was in the water the longest, almost uh, a little bit, almost close to four hours. What? What was the temperature of the water? The water was 28 degrees. Holy crap. Uh, Fahrenheit, yes? Yeah, that's uh, okay. Fahrenheit. Um, not sure of the Celsius, but it's four degrees below freezing. Ugh. And so if you're, if you had to, if you were to have gone into the water, um, depending upon your body chemistry and everything else, uh, the average person actually lived between 10 to 15 minutes before freezing to death. Um, <clears throat> so how, how long did the rescue mission last? Was it till the next morning? Well, Carpathia actually was, you know, Responded to Titanic's distress call uh, around 12.45 in the morning of April the 15th. And, you know, another one of those fun little crazy circumstances that unfortunately did not get uh, brought into the uh, Cameron film. But um, basically, uh, Harold Cottom, who was the uh, wireless operator on Carpathia at the time, 
uh, was literally in the process of shutting down for the night when the distress call came in. And so, you know, had he had shut down five minutes earlier, he would not have heard it in the first place. And so, you know, obviously he did race to the bridge to notify uh, Captain Rostrin, who was asleep at the time. Uh, Rostrin, of course, you know, being a captain, just, you know, bore down the guy's throat because, you know, you burst into the cabin door without asking for permission and you yell at the guy to wake up when, you know, this is a senior officer that you're talking to. I mean, it's very regimented and you just did everything that you're not supposed to do in less than five minutes time. (laughs) (laughs) So once the discipline part was taken care of and then Rostrin was informed of what was going on, right off the bat, he made arrangements to go ahead and you know, try to come to the aid. And uh, his initial estimate was going to be close to almost four hours uh, to get to uh, Titanic because Carpathia was an older ship compared to Titanic herself. And, you know, the rescue attempt, Rostrin, you know, actually claimed is more out of divine providence. He was was a deeply religious man. And so... um, you know, during the course of all the prep work, even though he had his crew and everything else on standby and ready to go, one thing that he did do that um, would have been complete danger to begin with was he actually redirected every ounce of uh, steam and pressure directly into the ship's boilers in order to make his ship to go faster. And at the time, Carpathia was technically designed to travel roughly about 16 and a half, 17 knots. And that night he was able to push it up to almost 20 knots. And obviously the whole thing was shaking because it's not used to that type of pressure, uh, you know, to begin with. And, you know, God forbid, but I mean, you know, if something would have backfired that the ship would have exploded. <laughs> so, wow. You know, just to give you an idea of just how close it was, you know, for, danger on the uh, during the course of the rescue itself now unfortunately once she did come to the scene um you know titanic was already gone uh they have they all that they found were just the first sets of the lifeboats and so you know then it just became more of the standard rescue and uh, recovery you know stand by wait for the boats to pull up help everybody and assist and then get them on board as quickly as possible get them out of the elements and you know secured you know the best that you can and then um were they able to uh, this is kind of morbid but were they able to um identify uh, all the bodies of the people that didn't make it or did some of them go down and stay down with the ship Believe it or not, um, a majority of them uh, had washed out uh, to sea entirely. Yeah, there's uh, there's a, only a few specific number that uh, you know that's been estimated that actually were on board or inside the ship at the time of the sinking itself. So um, there were uh, a few hundred that were recovered. Some that were buried at sea. Others are uh, actually in your neck of the woods over in uh, Halifax. Uh, Mount Olivet Cemetery and uh, two others. Really? Yeah. 
But there have been bodies that technically have never been recovered, correct? Correct. Okay. They lost the sea and things like that. Um, in terms of the ship, has there is it? Um, I, I'm I'm trying to suss out all the myths and the the bullshit in the movie. Um, oh yeah. Has there been attempts to go down and see what's in the ship, whether it be valuables or whatever? Oh, yes, yes. In fact, um, you know, if you really want to see a very, very phenomenal film, it's not as heavily promoted, but James Cameron uh, did produce what's tentatively called the sequel to Titanic. Really? Called uh, The Ghost of the Abyss. I have to look that up. And it is actually the entire interior tour of the ship from his expedition. And, you know, so you get to see inside of the cabins, uh, even down into the crewmen's quarters, uh, things like that. In fact, it was during the course of that expedition that uh, one thing that was uh, a surprise that no one had even uh, knew of at the time was that... uh, you know, in the uh, fireman's passage, um, the ship's designer uh, Thomas Andrews, uh, you know, who had actually worked you know, in conjunction with a number of the crew members uh, prior to Titanic, um, actually had installed water fountains for them because they had the lowest jobs on board and also one of the hottest. Um, you know. In this case, the fireman is not like what you would see, like with a fire brigade or things like that. These are the people that work at, you know, in what's called the Black Gang, and they they work near the boilers, and uh, they had to trim the fires either and help distribute the coal, things like that. So, even though you'd be working on a four-hour shift, by the time you're done, you know, you would be completely covered in soot. And um, you know, just think of uh, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. And then add a couple more layers, and then sweat on top of that house. <laughs> wow! Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I've 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 read some stuff, but um, I, I can't remember. Were they ever able to recover anything from the Titanic, whatever it may be? Oh yes, yes. There's there's been almost uh, 5,500 items that have been recovered that are. Uh, touring the uh, the world and uh, absolutely some of the most powerful things you can ever imagine um, there, there's one piece I always thought to be very fascinating and I know you know it's one of those cases where it was just a matter of good fortune more than anything else and um, it was a letter that was recovered and it, over the years it had been brought back into storage just to, to help uh, preserve it the rest of the way but um, in this case, it was from a young man who was doing the equivalent of uh, spring break. And it was written in uh, Portuguese, and he was writing to his friend. And he was complaining about being bored because nobody understood his, his language. You know, they would look at him funny. Um, the food's weird. It's not what he's used to. And all these things. And then it finally ends with, you know, I just wish the damn thing sank. <laughs> and well he did not make it <laughs> so, wow yeah and um I, I hate to ask this but like 
so is that letter specifically you, you mentioned the letter they ascertain a value on that that's worth something or it's invaluable or it's invaluable um you know for uh, for the most part uh you know very very fortunately for us uh there's a company up in uh you know, that is called RMS Titanic Incorporated. They've been around since 1987, and they are the, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, they are the federal protectors of the artifacts. Um, under the federal court for uh, over here in the states, they can recover the artifacts. They can, as long as the two things: one, they do not go for sale, and two, they are available to the public for uh, exhibition. And educational purposes. Okay. So. And um, okay, so the survivors, uh, when they were rescued and stuff, were they did they continue to New York or did they go back to where uh, um, to England? Well, initially they came back to New York on uh, Carpathia, and obviously by the time Carpathia arrived, uh, you know, in this case, you know. Once again, it's it's one of those moments where um, when you read the uh, survivors' accounts and even some of the period uh, pieces on it, you know, for some reason, if you were to try to even attempt to adapt it into film, it would be impossible to do. Because initially, what it you know, what it happened was uh, once it was confirmed without a shadow of a doubt that uh, you know Titanic was lost or looking at at least over a thousand missing or or lost and things like that you know um the world went to full bed i mean this is the equivalent of what we would see ourselves in our generation with 9 11. so you have a good comparison okay? okay and um so finally we you know it's only a few days after the sinking and uh, Carpathia comes into New York and it's in the midst of a major thunderstorm. So you got thunder, lightning, pouring down rain, but yet over 30,000 people uh, lined the uh, docks waiting to see what was happening. And as Carpathia came in, the first thing that she did, instead of going automatically to her birth, like everyone was anticipating for it to do, she stopped where Titanic would have been and lowered the lifeboats and they said that as soon as the lifeboats were lowered the whole world the whole surrounding area of the dockside just went complete silence wow that was the confirmation right there wow yeah um so did they sorry i i didn't know if you answered did they stay in new york or did they they um Go back to some England. Yes, yeah, some, some stayed. Others uh, went back to England. So, but the survivors that you've uh, got to know, they they stayed in New York. Two of them uh, did, and then moved on, you know, further west stateside, and uh, the other two went back to England. Okay. And um, I'm I'm curious if any of the survivors. Um, was they ever able to write a, a first-hand account, like a book or something, about uh, what happened? There's a, a number of them that, that have. I'd love, and, I'd love for uh, you to recommend them for not only for me but for the listeners, and because uh, I, 
like I said, this stuff interests me. I, I I'd like to pick I'd like to pick them up. Well, um, one that you would definitely like is uh, written by a survivor by the name of Lawrence Beasley, and you know he's one of the few male survivors to survive from second class. And uh, what makes his account and book so fascinating is the fact that uh, you know prior to becoming known as a Titanic survivor. Beasley was actually a uh, school teacher in uh, Dulwich College. Okay. And so he was coming over to the States to uh, to do a conference and such and just kind of take a small vacation in a matter of speaking. So, you know, him being an educator, his whole account is actually done more as a, uh, from a researcher's perspective because he also was a budding scientist. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's predominantly more analysis, more than, well, this is how I felt. It's, in this case, it's, well, this is what transpired, and this is what the reactions were like, and then I noticed this. <laughs> so. Okay. But, you know, but if you, if you really want a fascinating one, and um, you know, especially if, if you like period information like this, Look for a book called Titanic Survivor by Violet Jessup. Uh, she is, her book is actually the perfect window into what life was like working on board an ocean liner at the time. Oh, she was, uh, and, she uh, was working? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and you know, it gives not only her account of how she survived Titanic, but also Britannic in 1916 as well. She was on the hospital ship of the sister ship as a nurse at the time and uh but even on top of that she was the only one, one of the few that worked on all three of the olympic class liners wow and you know, and obviously she does have a few little quips in between where uh you know she talks about what it was like working with some of the passengers in first class and uh you know what are they like in person versus what we saw in the newspapers and things of that effect. So it's at times it's humorous and quippy. Then at other points, you you're going to hold on to the book and it's probably, it's going to hold your attention for a few hours. So. Wow. Yeah. And, um, in terms of the books that you've written, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you can name them, have a whole list. I'm, 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 I'm interested. Not a problem. Well, <laughs> Titanic-wise, I, I have uh, Touched by the Titanic, which I'd written in 2012. And, uh, you know, the long story short on that one, for the 100th anniversary, uh, I was very, very fortunate enough to work with the sister city of my hometown. And my entire uh, collection of memorabilia went on display at their uh, museum. That's so awesome. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it was humbling more than anything else. Uh, I was able to draw in uh, 15,000 people. So I was very, very pleased. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, but, but what I did, though, was um, you know, I used that as the companion book for the exhibition. And so you know, instead of talking about the ship itself and things to that effect, it's more in the sense of how the ship had impacted my life. And what it had done to help me as to become the person that I am. Okay. And then after that, I did a follow-up book called how to rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic, 
which is where I talk about what it's like installing a professional museum exhibition, uh, you know, for people that are not familiar with it. And then, you know, in between talking about the, uh, the planning and the execution of the opening day, I interspliced it with what was transpiring 100 years ago at that particular point. So, well, I was planning and signing off on the date and everything else with the museum curator 100 years ago at that point in time, Titanic was being delivered and prepped for service. I started hauling things down 100 years ago, the crew members started signing up, signing up for work. So I always made it a point to keep the blending in between alternating uh, chapters. So That sounds like a great read. I, uh... Thank you. And then uh, the, uh, the next one that I did, um, it was actually more out of a dare, believe it or not. And it's called uh, Titaniacs Among Us. And I, I was actually dared to write a public service announcement type of a book and kind of poke fun at uh, the Titanic community in general, you know, and uh, more out of, you know, not pointing fingers and calling out direct names or things to that effect, but more in the sense like, um, we do we do have a few historians that do admit that they find it to be a little aggravating at times where you'll get what's called a titaniac um, you know nine times out of ten it's usually somebody who's in love with the movie more than the history and they'll attend a conference or something like that effect but they'll always dress in the period costume and try to make it seem like they're from that time frame so you know, if they see you holding up your phone, they'll be like, well, what is that exactly? I've never seen one of those before. <laughs> I will tell you real quick. Um, I think I, I know someone. Uh, so remember when I said I saw the movie? Um, at that time, I was uh, part of our foster system here in, in Ontario. So I had a foster sister. And, uh, I mean, we've seen the movie. But, like, so there was, like, a news crew i guess they were asking people you know what do you think of the movie what do you think of the movie and they um they got my foster sister and they're like how many times have you seen the movie in theater and she goes 17 times <laughs> oh, not bad <laughs> so now since you said you're, you're from uh, ontario believe it or not you have a few uh, survivors uh from there so uh, that's why I'm, I'm honestly surprised that you, you, you never realized uh, some, some of those things. I did not realize that people would fly to England to get on the Titanic. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, one question I we didn't cover is: um, Do you know the makeup of everybody on the Titanic? Was like practically every country represented, or a anything you want to speak to that? Oh yeah. Um, you know, literally, it's it, it encompassed a, a, a considerable amount of, of the uh, global population. It was definitely a true microcosm of the society at the time, uh, you know, to a point where just within these past few months, another aspect of the disaster is only just now finally coming to light, and that is the story of uh, six Chinese survivors. Really? Yeah. You know, there have only been about, not even maybe... 
of all the accounts, maybe two or three times that it's been mentioned of the of this particular group. So, 110 years later, their story is now finally seeing the light. So, wow. Yeah. Because that's another myth of the movie. Because if you look in the movie, mostly white people, um, some, some Italians, but mo- mostly white, uh, I don't know, European, that's from what I can gather from their accents, um, and no representation. I, I dare say that if a Titanic movie was made today, it would look quite a bit different. It probably would, you know, because, I mean, you have, um, you know, you do have the uh, Chinese, like I said, six Chinese, one Japanese, uh, you know, a few Arabs, one African of uh, French-African descent. So we have one of the first interracial couples that, uh, you know, that you don't always see very often, uh, historically and such. You know, and then, but other than that, predominantly for sure, um, you know, the rest were all probably, uh, you know, just standard white European. But from different countries, like uh, Russia was represented, even yeah. even little small places like Slovakia? Slovakia, Finland, oh. you know, Sweden. <laughs> so that's why, if you notice, there's so many, um, you know, Titanic organizations around the world. You know, we, we, we even have the, you know, I didn't, the I didn't, the Swiss, the British, the Irish. <laughs> I did not know that. I, I really yeah. have to brush up on my Titanic because it's always been something I'm fascinated with, you know, but, you know, life gets in the way here and there, whatever, and I, I don't have the time. And it, it seems like, like you have um, dedicated, like you said, a large portion of your life to the Titanic. And thank you because, I mean, with the knowledge and and it's just nice to know that you know we have a, a I'm gonna call you a historian if that's okay. That's absolutely fine. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's exactly what I am. <laughs> you know, and we didn't honestly we didn't learn Titanic in um, in school up here. We learned like the wars and stuff like that. And honestly, I would have fallen asleep if my teacher didn't do voices for the uh, the people he was doing voices for. I mean, I found that entertaining, so that's why I stayed awake. But no, we never learned Titanic. What about uh, in the U.S.? Do they teach uh, the Titanic in school? It's actually uh, required reading. And really? uh, we have it from the elementary schools. Uh, and then locally here, uh, down here for South Florida, even our law school covers the uh, limitation of liability factor of it. you got to get your book as one of the books they got to read. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, you know, I, I, I've dropped it in the, in the uh, suggestion box a couple of times, but so I got a couple other questions I want to ask you. Um, sure, by all means. So after the whole um, mess of the Titanic, I don't know whether what other word to use. Did they ever make try to make a second Titanic? Um, and were people, if they did, were people afraid to get on that boat? Believe it or not, uh, and th- this is one of the things that a, a majority of both myself and some of the fellow historians, uh, we, we do chuckle at it, but uh, there was an attempt to do what was called Titanic 2, and no, it's not the movie with Bruce Davidson. They, they picked up on it the rest of the way. I've never but, seen that one. I gotta, I gotta watch Titanic 2. 
That's considered one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> but, it is. <laughs> so, but, um, Believe it or not, there was a Australian billionaire named Clive Palmer who wanted to rebuild Titanic, call it Titanic 2, for everybody that loved the movie, okay? And, you know, he proposed it was going to be sailing by 2012. Now, uh, here we are 10 years later, you know, the, the project has been bankrupt for about the past nine years, but every once in a while, the press still likes to still recirculate the press release for it but they keep changing the dates. hold so, on Did, uh, didn't you say the guy was a billionaire how is it bankrupt <laughs> very simple you know he just goes into the wrong investments and in this case uh when you think about it you know titanic 2 and you're gonna do it exactly like what you would have seen in 1912 well you just kind of killed three quarters of your uh, potential uh master market because the reality of it is, okay, just to have an idea, for third class, which is where a bulk of the people were on, in 1912, you know, just because of the emigration and everything else, there was one bathtub for 798 people. I did not know that. Yes. So the washrooms on the Titanic, they were, what, I guess communal is the right word? In a matter of speaking, yes. There were, there were even a few, very few first-class staterooms that did have access to an actual bathroom, but for the most part, 90% of it were chamber pots. Really? So, yeah. I guess I never I never noticed that watching, even watching the movie. I don't, uh, I don't remember that so part. You, you know, that's one of those things you really wouldn't have been, you know, wanting to notice in the first place. Um... It, you know, if, if you're familiar with the period and the makeup of the ship and things like that, you you would be able to notice that. But most people that go to see the movie were there just to see, you know, Kate Winslet naked on the couch or Leonardo. <laughs> <laughs> you got your choice or both. <laughs> I just thought of one other thing I wanted to ask you: the, is it a myth or is this based on a real person? Um, the unsinkable Molly Brown. <laughs> oh yes. Um, not only is she a real person, I'm very, very, very honored to be friends with her great-grandmother. Really? Uh, her granddaughter, yes. Yeah, that, that, well, it's, her real name is Margaret Brown. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they kind of snubbed it a little bit in terms of uh, Margaret's reaction to the sinking. The real story of what happened to her during the course of that night is what makes the woman all the more admirable on so many levels, okay? Um, you know, she was in charge and boarded into lifeboat number six. And so the crewman in charge of that was a gentleman named Robert Hitchens. Hitchens was actually at the wheel of Titanic, but it had the, you know, the collision with the iceberg. Okay? Um, before the sinking and everything else, he was known to be a little bit more of the standard English chauvinist in one sense, where, you know, I'm, if I'm a man and, you know, you're in my house, then you're going to listen to what I say, do as I do, things like that. So, with him being in charge of the lifeboat, as soon as Titanic went under, 
you know, Margaret said, well, we got to roll back and we got to try to save as many people as possible. And Hitchens was like, nope, you know, we're going to stay here. We're going to wait till things get quiet. And that's it. And they started kind of butting heads a little bit. And it got to a point where he's like, well, listen, you know, I'm in charge of the boat. I'm a man. You're a woman. You're going to sit there and you're going to shut up. Now, the fun part is Margaret was almost a foot and a half taller than Hitchens. <laughs> and so she stood up. <laughs> and she was. She said, if you get fresh with me, son, I'm going to throw you overboard. And some of the other survivors actually reached over and held on to her dress to hold her back just in case purposes. And so, you know, even though you see her in the movie sitting there in shock and, you know, what's wrong with you, those are your men and things like that, the reality is, you know, she actually took over the boat and, you know, even taught these uh, first-class women how to do physical work like rowing a lifeboat and how to find the direction and navigate. Wow. And, um, you know, they did end up pulling a few survivors from the water, but unfortunately, uh, you know, a majority of them did not survive the night. Wow. And I guess the the last question I have for you is um, on the legal side, there had to have been lawsuits uh, levied against the the maker, the owner, or the the operator of the Titanic, and uh, anything that you you can speak to 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 that degree. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they're 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 pretty much so a majority of lawsuits almost immediately, and you know that's one of the reasons why you know by not the nineteen thirties, White Star ended up merging with Canard Line, you know, so the, com- the competitor pretty much just kind of bought out the other one altogether. And, you know, but there's a lot of ripple effects along the way, even on top of um, lawsuits against the company and things like that. Um, some of the bigger factors that came into play was actually, uh, you know, some of the survivors' benefit funds. Okay, because one of the biggest things that, uh, you know, in one sense, we could say that it was, you know, it was their sacrifice was not in vain. But um, you know, the crew members, for example, okay, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that makes this still a powerful story, impact-wise, is the fact that the majority of the crew actually stayed at their posts all the way through to the end. You know, we see this best example, obviously, with the engineers. They kept the lights running all the way through, even after the breakup and sinking of the ship itself. The emergency lights actually stayed on until the final plunge. So, but what basically happened, though, was that if you were a crew member, and this was on any ship, okay, it doesn't matter where, you know, Titanic in particular, but just any ship at that time, if your ship sank, then your paycheck stopped. Soon as the, as soon as the ship goes under, that's the cutoff time of your job. So, understandably, that it turned into a ripple effect. Uh, you know, not only between the loss of the breadwinners, but also some that were coming home, but now they don't have a job. And obviously, maritime superstition—you never say the name of a shipwreck, so you can't say, "Well, this was where I worked beforehand." <laughs> so. <laughs> 
know, but uh, believe it or not, the survivor's benefit, though, the final payout actually lasted through until 1997, just a few months prior to the release of the movie. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's... And this was in the, the U.S., or was this in Europe? This was in Europe. Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah within, within the first couple of days of the sinking, right off the bat, there, there was... Around the world, there were global benefits trying to help the survivors and you know, in general, um, <clears throat> operas, baseball games, um, scout troops selling memorial books, which you can still find uh, on eBay, by the way. Um, some of the original memorial books and stuff, um, you know, and then obviously even some of the other factors too, where you see like the best example being, of course. Um, you know, obviously from going to camp and stuff like that, some of the stories like it was sad when the shape, great ship went down and, you know, oh, they built the ship Titanic. Well, that was all part of the, uh, some of the memorial records on top of the song Be British. So, you know, if you had an extra six pence uh, to contribute towards the survivor, you could buy a, one of the uh, records for the photograph. Wow. Um... So, I, I had one more question. Sorry, I just thought of it now. Um, Not a you've seen the movie. Um, in your opinion, even mm-hmm. though even though technically the the whole story of Jack and Rose was bullshit, um, was he robbed of of a of an Oscar? I would say without a doubt, yes. Yeah, I mean, Leo did fantastic. You know, as, as as an actor, and uh, you know, especially for that for that film. Because I mean, even outside of doing it uh, from one perspective, um, you know, look at the physical capabilities that he had to do. And I mean, especially having to be going through the the, uh, the cold water. You know, even though it's in Mexico, and still is that where they filmed it. Yeah, yeah, they, they filmed it in Mexico. I did not know that. Rosarito Beach. <laughs> I did not know that. So, you know, understandably, uh, you know, for something like that, it's you know, he, he really, really came above and beyond, and I, I really think he definitely should have won the Oscar, you know, because that, that's one of those hard roles to try to keep the weight on. Were you also surprised that? Uh, there wasn't a follow up with uh, Kate, uh, Kate Winslet, right? Because they mm-hmm. Jack died in the first one. That there wasn't a follow up with uh, with Kate Wiz- Winslet as the starring role. Not really. Um, I, I actually did enjoy though the uh, the transition that he chose for the ending, where you see the photographs and you see that everything that they had talked about prior were the accomplishments that she had made. Yeah, I thought that 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 would be that was the perfect way of bringing it full circle like that. So that's amazing, and um, I've had so much fun uh, uh, talking to you about the Titanic. You've told me things I didn't know, and uh, I'm just blown away right now. Um, why don't you talk yeah, about no. your 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 other books and and tell the listeners uh, just whatever you have to offer? I, I I'm here for it. Not a problem. Uh, right, right now, as, as you know, as you can see in my uh, my background, uh, I can bleed it over like this. Yeah. Um, 
this is one of my own personal uh, little accolades and trophies. I I do pat myself on the shoulder on this. This is a fantasy series that I have devoted into writing over the past uh, 31 years. I started writing this when I was in school. It's called The Legend of Graham Hallaclair. And you know, it's an epic fantasy, but in this case, though, uh, it's actually based off of random snippets of history that have always been of interest for me. And so, you know, all of my, a majority of my characters are actually based off of actual historical figures, everything from uh, Genghis Khan all the way through. And, uh, you know, even some of the uh, battles that I have taking place, uh, you know, if you withdraw and uh, take out the uh, catapults, the dragons, and the mythological monsters, you know, you're looking at everything from uh, Waterloo to Yorktown to uh, some of the World War II battles, including uh, the pursuit of uh, Battleship Bismarck. And so, um, you know, it's uh, it's been a very, very, very ongoing fun process. And along the way, um, I, you know, like I always say, I always talk about Joseph Campbell's uh, book on mythology and talking about the hero's journey and such. And uh, The Legend of Graham How to Claire is actually my living embodiment of it, uh, believe it or not, because when I first started writing this uh, series, uh, I was 16 years old sitting in my art science class, and I was bored because I already was familiar with what the class lecture was going to be about. And diagonal for me was another gentleman who was uh, in the process of drawing some skulls on his notebook and so I leaned over and I asked him well do you know how to draw a minotaur and you know, he just kind of looked at me a minute and then five minutes later he gives me a sketch of the minotaur and by the time I got to the end of that class I had already outlined the first story Wow! and then fortunately my friend at the time shared the same lunch break so I was like okay well can you draw a dragon can you draw a sword can you give me a broadsword can you give me a highlander standing in a kilt above a, a whole bunch of dead bodies something that I could work with <laughs> and so <laughs> and then lo and behold by my afternoon class I had another friend who really really liked the pictures but hated reading and so it was the combination of the two. And so in his case, though, he actually had a garage band and was a music composer. And so for the past 30 years, while well, I've been punching out and pushing the, uh, the book series, he actually has performed local venues, uh, you know, down throughout South Florida, at least, uh, soundtrack and soundtrack scores to the books. So it's been a crazy experience to say the least and uh, you know, I'm very happy to say that as you know bringing it up today uh, volume one of the book is available I you can get it through uh, kmpentertainment.org and also online as well too and um, on top of that though uh, just within the past few weeks uh, in fact uh, the day after you and I had first started speaking initially when we were on the phone mm -hmm. I actually joined an author's panel with none other than uh, John Grisham and uh, Chandra Rhymes. Wow. To actually pre profile and share my work to the world. And so it, it, it was a wild experience, to say the least. And uh, right now, 
you know, I'm, I'm never one for being idle. I never let the grass grow under my feet, as they say. So I'm actually have been reverse engineering these books into scripts. And so we're actually shopping them around to the studios to see if uh, they would want to do a full-blown epic scale fantasy series uh, based off the stories. Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think the, the fantasy world has been starving for something like that since Harry Potter ended. So I think, I think your timing might be right. Well, here, here's knocking on wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as far as being a historian, the Titanic, is that your, that's your, 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 area of expertise or your specialty but um have you been able to branch out from the titanic i don't know if i'm saying that properly <laughs> no yeah that, that's not a problem um you know it, 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 I, i'm gonna summarize you be the best editor of them all and it's actually a, a set of dialogue from alec guinness in the film raise the titanic you know, and, and it's paraphrasing him, but you know, it's an odd thing that uh, you know I've had a few other experiences, but all everyone ever wants to talk to me about is the Titanic. But I have tried to branch out a few times, and so that's why, luckily, Graham How to Claire is my way of doing it, of showing that uh, you know I'm a history buff in general, but you know, Titanic is always going to be the closest to my heart because that's where I've spent my heaviest amount of research. That's awesome. No, I, I'm telling you this because um, I, I told you on the phone uh, I'm working on it and I, I, I don't really want to spoil it for the listeners, but I'll give a teaser. Um, I was originally going to start it in January, but uh, my schedule has kind of opened up uh, because my my co-host is unsure if he's going to be able to come back at all, so I have to plan ahead. And um, I'm going to be starting a like a like I'm still going to do interviews and social justice and stuff like that, but I'm also going to do um, history stuff. So we're going to start in uh, I think it's late October, early November, uh, with the War of 1812. It's a three-part series. And then in chronological order, cover, um, I can't remember what's next. I think it's the the Roaring Twenties and then the Great Depression and then World War One and World War Two and, and you know, there'll be some things. I actually had the Titanic in there, um, uh, but I don't need to do that now because we've done that, <laughs> you know? Um, well, well I'll, I'll tell you what I could definitely do for you then. Um, one of my fellow Titanic historians is a woman that you will really, really appreciate. She's one of the directors with the Sydney Museum in Australia. Uh, her name is Inger Scheel. Wow. And believe it or not, um, all almost all of her outfits that she does, she, her background outside of Titanic is also on the 1920s. And if you were to look her up, you know, Outside of her professional pictures, uh, you would be surprised. I mean, most of her fashion senses are usually about circa 1921-22. And, you know, just think Agatha Christie. And the other thing that I'm going to be doing is, uh, because it's it's technically it's a history podcast, I can do anything. I can go anywhere. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be dipping my toe into the true crime, not completely, but um, because I have parameters I want to stick to. Uh, we're going to be doing, they have to be cold cases, unsolved, and I'm going to start with the local area, so in uh, within Ontario. Um, okay. There's a few that come to mind. Um, I don't know uh, how plugged you, in you are to true crime, but there is a disappearance of an eight-year-old girl in 1985. Her name is Nicole Morin. Um, they recently have had a break in her case. So I'm interested to see what happens, but I still want to cover it. Um, and then there's the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman, who were the, I don't know if their owner is the right word, of a, of a drug company up here called Apotex. Uh, mm-hmm. And then um, I have a friend whose sister went missing, I think it was over six years ago. No, it, it's got to be longer than that. And uh, I haven't spoken to him yet, so if he's listening, hey, I'm going to convince him to come on the show and tell his story, because his sister's case is unsolved. And this happened in Richmond Hill, which is just north of Toronto in Canada. Okay. Well, we definitely got some good options, uh, to say the least. Uh, for, the, for the historical factors, obviously... If it's, if it's something that I'm not quite familiar with, but nine times out of ten, I do know a few people in the uh, circles. Well, I so think, I'd be happy to help point you in the right direction if things go south. I think the big thing for me, other than, you know, you got your wars, which have their high points and stuff, but the big thing for me, the the thing that, I mean, I've, I've learned it in school, but I've probably forgotten it since then, is actually what turned the Roaring Twenties into the Great Depression. What was the um, the event, I guess, uh, that that switched it from the, the booming Twenties, the Roaring Twenties, to the Great Depression? That's what I'm going to be interested in because it can't. Maybe it's one big thing, but then it, it's it, like you said with the Titanic. It's 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 a ripple effect. It is, yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to look for the stuff that's going to seem really, really insignificant and this minuscule first. And then from there, just follow the trail. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on and, and blowing my mind. Probably my listeners, too. I, uh, the Titanic, man, who knew? Um, yeah. Now, if you'd like, I, I'm going to leave you with uh, two good suggestions. Of course. If you really want some good books, uh, reading-wise, uh, on the subject. You know okay. what? You know what my favorite kind of book is? It's What's a true, true story. Usually you find them in biographies, but I am all for true stories. So yeah, hit me. Okay, to start with, A Night to Remember. It is still considered the go-to book for anyone that wants to study Titanic. And that's actually over 200, almost 200 survivors' accounts compiled into the book format. It's okay. been on the bestsellers list since its release in 1953. I'm going to write that down. Say that again. It's called A Night to Remember. A Night to Remember. Author is uh, Walter Lord. Okay. Okay. Now, the other book that I can recommend has just only recently come out. And uh, it's, uh, you know, for, for us in the States, we have to wait until 
closer towards September, but uh, but you guys up north and also in England, it's already available. The name of the book is called Understanding mm-hmm. J. Bruce Ismay, the man who is known as the coward of the Titanic. Is that the, the guy? That's not the same guy that, that tried to uh, overpower Molly uh, Brown, right? No, in this case, uh, if you remember in the movie, he was the one that was trying to get the captain to add more speed. Yes. So he's based on a real. He's based on a real person. He, not only is he based on a real person, um, the author is a very, very close friend of mine. I've I've worked with him uh, research-wise for almost nearly uh, fourteen and a half years, and you know this is this is also again going back to ripple effects uh, when the movie came out um, you know unfortunately it kind of added some stigma to him because he shares the same last name as Bruce and so there are there were occasions where people would say are you related to the coward of the Titanic <laughs> <laughs> and you know but again you know what we see on film, is the creative licensing of it. Uh, what really happened to him and what he really did, it's a whole other story. So uh, fortunately, this is the first time in 110 years that the, that the real story is finally being shared publicly instead of strictly to the family. That's amazing. So, um, sorry, I just had one final question before I let you go. I just thought of yes. it now. Uh, there were survivors alive when the movie came out, correct? Yes. Did any of them get offended, want to sue, uh, disagreed with the account of what took place in the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, not not from the full direct survivors, but um, believe it or not, actually, uh, the whole sequence of First Officer Murdoch, not only accepting bribes from Billy Zane, but then, you know, shooting himself and stuff like that, um, basically, uh, that whole thing he caused an uproar with his uh, immediate family members because uh, when Murdoch actually went down with Titanic, you know there are full accounts, and then there's even they can even see it on the wreck to this day. He was at there's actually one lifeboat David still up in an upright position where he was last known to have been trying to help launch the people when the final plunge happened. So, but uh, between the whole bribery accepting and things like that that you see in the movie, that caused a ripple effect because uh, in his honor, there was actually a scholarship that was put together from the people in his village. Wow. And, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, as soon as you see the accepting bribes, things like that, then you know, even though it's been a long time, it still raises the question. And so, uh, you know, there, there were donations that had to be made and uh, even in a, in a, a few apologies as well, too. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I always say is, you know, if, if you're going to do a, a project based off of a historical event, you know, make sure that you have everything accurate as possible, even though you want to do the creative licensing or something like that, don't overdo it because you don't know who's going to be in the audience. And 
you know, obviously in this case, we see what happened. <laughs> wow. Well, I can't think of a better way to end on that. Again, thank you for coming on, for blowing our minds and, and letting us know about Titanic. I'm going to go and get these books and start reading, and I'm going to um, I'm gonna look into your books as well. And, uh, wow, I, I'm going to have to buy a new bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> well, tr- trust me, I'm, I'm working on my 16th shelf already. I'm, I'm, I'm a bibliophile by heart. So uh, very, very dangerous if you say the words book fair, book sale, or bookstore going out of business (laughs) absolutely um thank you so much uh we'll uh we'll talk soon we'll touch base and uh thank you again for coming on i really appreciate it and uh, i wish you luck with uh getting your 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 fantasy series on screen i'd love to see it Well, well thank you matt thank you for the opportunity and uh you know i you know i look forward to speaking with you again as well too and with your uh, future endeavors, I can't. I can't wait. I'm already uh, getting popcorn off to the side, ready for the uh, new podcast. So. <laughs> Again, thank you. Have a great day. Take care now.